0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, your host. As we get into part two of the Vin Armani interview, this is the second Vin Armani interview. So if you have not listened to the first series that we did, go back, I think, two or three interviews ago, starting with episode 111. And that is that series that lasts quite a while. There are many episodes there. So listen to that first. And also, obviously, if you haven't listened to part one of this specific interview, then listen to that as well. But assuming that you are caught up, this will be part two. And as a reminder, Vin had just gotten done talking about miracles and comparing the idea of miracles and a virgin birth with Bitcoin and solving the algorithm when you were doing mining and that kind of thing. And so that's where he kind of left off and we're going to progress from that. There, I did get some feedback on that aspect of the first part of the interview where he does this comparison of miracles and comparing that to Bitcoin. Some of you feel like he went a little too far. That was a bit of a stretch, and I probably agree with you on that, but the principle of just that idea, that symbolism, that aspect of the similarities between the process of the Bitcoin mining and some of the processes of religion and tradition. I think those are very valid and valuable. So let's just pick up from there. I'm sure there'll be more that you'll disagree with in this part. Uh, You'll be able to tell there's a little bit that I disagreed with him on that I mentioned, but we will just continue on from here. And I hope you enjoy part two of the Vin Armani interview. There is one, uh, Contrarian perspective that some people have that blockchain technology will also be not only what drives you know these wonderful ideas that you're espousing here, but it'll also be what initiates the control of a transhumanist technocratic control grid over all of humanity, and that that's not such a good thing. And Um, I know you I believe you mentioned it in the book about just about how um, tools can be Mm -hmm. used, you know, obviously for good and bad. And they are. And um, I would say that that's probably the case here, that blockchain technology will be used for good and it will be used for bad. There Mm -hmm. are these two veins. You've got the definite centralized, highly controlled vein, and you Mm -hmm. have the decentralized, spontaneous order vein. Mm -hmm. And so Uh, With that, I, I think, my understanding at least, is that you see part of the answer, part of a response, part of falling in line with the natural order and keeping that anchor there, part of that for you seems to be the technology. It seems like that's a big part of it. And at the same time, this same technology is what is pushing us Farther away from um, the target, from that mark, and so uh, is that. Uh, I don't. I don't even really know what to ask, to be honest. But I know what um, you're asking. I, I okay. I get, I
1: get what you're asking, and and it's good because it allows me to make a distinction. So there's a reason why uh, the subtitle of the book is "Prophecy, Profit, and Proof of Work in the Dim Age," and not "Prophecy, Profit, and Bitcoin in the Dim Age," and it's because the important part of Bitcoin the the part that is relevant to the kingdom of God and also the part that I just described to you uh, so what I just described to you was mi- Bitcoin mining was how mining works uh, is is leveraging this concept of these incredibly rare numbers that are that are found basically and and us expending incredible amounts of energy it takes incredible amounts of energy to go into out of the material world, into the abstract world, and extract and find these things. We're mining the ether. That's one reason Vitalik gets this. It's why he called it Ethereum, <laughs> right? Like this notion of uh, entering into the ether to, to do these things is, uh, is there. So, you know, blockchain technology minus proof of work is absolutely going to be used to enslave humanity, 100%. Um, That is, it's just a tool. Just like Christianity, just like the church is a tool, okay? Uh, Christianity is the concept, uh, the church is the tool, and these concerns is the reason why you know why there is an Orthodox Church and a Catholic Church is why there is a, a why Luther pinned his ninety-five thesis on the church door. Uh, you know the selling of indulgences and whatnot is that it's like that that the Catholic Church was doing uh, the many things that were corrupting it. Bitcoin without proof of work is still a very powerful system, but it is a powerful system that is necessarily in centralized hands so it is the proof of work that prevents decentralization it is the, if you read the white paper it is the proof of work that allows it to be peer to peer satoshi says this ex- like he he really explicitly says this you know he says digital signatures are are part of the solution but they're not all of it and that he he provides proof of work as the answer and so We've, we've seen proof of work abandoned in Bitcoin. So you look at um, Liquid. This is the federated blockchain second layer, whatever you want to call it, that Blockstream has developed. And it's being used by major financial houses. It's being used. They're using it. And what is it? It's like an oligarchy. It's a group of 17 organizations, financial institutions, Blockstream themselves, some other corporations and whatnot, who instead of mining, they basically decide between themselves on some algorithm. So this is what you're going to see with proof of stake and these other things. When you do that, then the aspect of the kingdom of God is gone. You have the cryptography, you have the data structure of the blockchain, but It's no longer peer to peer, because those those that federation can decide to censor um, without competition, and they can decide to to eliminate others. This is exactly if you go back and read Facebook's idea of how they were going to do Libra initially, and still how they're going to do it. It's it's a proof of it's a federated model like this. So you look at the group; it was like Mastercard was in there. Um, some other major corporations basically were in there, some banks, I think Goldman Sachs and some others, and they would just decide what transactions got put in or not. It wouldn't be through this this process of mining, this requirement of the, it's got to have the face of God on it. Whose face is on it? That's the idea, right? And so how do you put the face of God on it? Well, you, got, you go into the ether and you pull these numbers out with great expense, at great expense. Like you've got to expend, you've got to sacrifice a lot. A lot. It's a gigantic sacrifice to keep the face of God on it. And so people who say that are not wrong. But first off, I don't consider those other things to be Bitcoin. Um, blockchain technology because Bitcoin is proof of work. Read the read the white paper. Bitcoin, a peer to peer electronic cash system. Like proof of work is is cannot be removed from Bitcoin. And so, that's what that's what people need to see. The blockchain is really kind of unimportant. Like it's a data structure, it's a way of organizing the transactions, and it's not altogether necessary. Like it it works, but the blockchain in and of itself is not where the power is. the The power of this whole thing is one in the cryptography, and then the the hashing, the mining is the cryptography as well. Um, but of course, that's what many of these central bank digital currencies are going to be blockchain based, because they know that they work. They know that the blockchain works. Uh, that the everything is there. The proof is, the, it's ten years of proof with Bitcoin that this this model, this system works. But every single one of them will remove the proof of work aspect, and they'll go to a just basically just a federated model. Hmm. That's very interesting.
0: I like that. Yeah, because usually what I hear is the opposite, that it's the blockchain technology that is the key, no. and that Bitcoin is separate, and you're flipping that around, and I, I, I might like that more.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. So the, the one uh, contradiction, though, that I know some people will be thinking is that can't you just have some very similar issues with uh, federations of miners? As you could with federations of stakers.
1: Well, no, no. Okay. So, if you're if you're doing mining, uh, and you are going to do permissioned mining, so you're just going to have that only you can mine, only I can mine, whatever. It actually doesn't make any sense to continue mining. It actually doesn't, um, because it's eventually what happens is you stop mining. You get to a few stakeholders, right? So let's say you do permission mining. It is going to coalesce around a few. You've basically got a cartel, right? And there's like three or four. Well, eventually they just say, well, why, guys, why are we expending all this energy? There's only four of us here. We're not letting anybody else in. Why are we spending all this money? Why don't we just keep it, <laughs> right? It's like, why, why don't we just keep it? We don't need to be to, to be expending this. It'll be all profit. And of course, they're all going to look at each other and be like, oh, yeah, that's true. So if you see permission mining starting, then you know that's the logical logical progression. Um, otherwise, you have to... It is, it is forcing. If somebody wants to be the top miner, it forces them to continue to expend and sacrifice. And it's like, yes, the person that sacrifices the most... So long as they can, and there's only a certain degree to which they can do it. They can only do it to the degree that they remain profitable. This is an important concept that I'm talking about in the book. It's not, there's no reason. This is why governments have not, people, people have asked, well, governments have all this money. Why don't they just print the money, create all these data centers, and take over Bitcoin? Well, Satoshi Nakamoto says why because if you're going if as soon as you get 51%, why would you destroy the value of the network? You're making more money than everybody else. You're getting more coins than everybody else. Even a government is going to be like, well, we expended all this money. Why don't we just now we have all this money. This you know, like you just like the CIA selling drugs. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like why would they why would they not take the revenue at that at that point if they, if it's profitable con, at considerable profit? As a matter of fact, they do things in the market to prop the price and the value up. If anything, if they're if they're the main holder and the main person who's receiving it, so it it is it the the incentives are to increase the value of the network. And one of the things that increases the value of the network is to openly allow competition, to not do permissioned mining. Um, because even you know. You, you cut yourself off. The people who can't get in, the risk that you run is, the people who can't get in in your permission system, there's nothing preventing them from doing their own system that is not permissioned and taking your market share. And this is why we haven't seen that. So the, it, is, it is a system that is built on some very solid incentives that have played themselves out. People have been asking these questions. I'm actually, I'm doing this course for Renegade University. So I'm going back through a lot of the history. People have brought up that criticism and said that that was going to happen since before Satoshi even released the code. Hmm. They said, this will definitely just coalesce in a few hands. This will do this, this, and this. It hasn't. They were wrong. And yet people still keep saying it, which is crazy. But it just goes to say it's human nature, right? Like even 10 years on of being proven uh nope that didn't happen not happening it will it will it will it's like when (laughs) like if it if it didn't happen at the time when it was actually like easy to do with not a lot of capital and not a lot of effort and not huge players involved you know to think that now it's going to happen when it's got momentum just doesn't it's not doesn't make a lot of sense
0: yeah yeah and i've I've definitely made the incentive model argument in the past a lot, and the the one argument that still stands up to it, and it can't be proven either way, but like you say, once someone, say, gains 51% of the network, or in a proof-of-stake model, once someone has, you know, say they have much more stake than the entire rest of the network, you know, whatever, someone is... To in a, in a sense, in control of the network in a position where they could be a bad actor and harm the network. Um, they are incentivized at that point not to because they have so much at stake. They have so much invested. And so, you know, why just demolish that? Why not use that? You're making profit. And that's mm-hmm. a very valid and very reasonable argument. The problem, though, is that there is definite potential for actors, institutions, states, whatever, that are driven by more than just profit. Because profit isn't just monetary. You also have issues of power and control, even something as fundamental as revenge. Um, There are other motivators that can supersede the motivations of wealth and profit. So there may be people, institutions, states, whatever, bad actors that would be perfectly willing to sacrifice billions of dollars just so that they can destroy something for whatever reason. And I- I'm saying that it can't be proven either way because obviously this hasn't happened and it might not ever happen. But th- that's my one hesitation, at least, with having something that is so reliant on on this aspect of the incentive model because there are more incentives than what you've invested, wealth, money, what's at stake. And that's where I see if there is going to be a major issue, and it it could be with proof of work or proof of stake. You could have, uh, for example, with Bitcoin, the majority of miners, at least last I looked, were in China. Mm -hmm. And so theoretically, And I'm not saying this is a reasonable thought and worry, but uh, theoretically still, you could have the Chinese government uh, nationalize all these mining operations, but do it secretly. Somehow they just secretly overnight, all of a sudden control all these mining operations. And in China, I I wouldn't say it's a 0% chance. Um, uh, So theoretically, this could happen. And as soon as they did, they own 51% of the network. Let's say that they viewed Bitcoin as a threat to their existence of their communist system. And they want to be, uh, let's just say they're the the evil Bond villain that wants to take over the world. And they see Bitcoin as a network, a system that is stopping them from doing this. And I, I would probably actually say using America as the example would fit better for that model. But either way, it's a nation state. They take over 51% and then they just crash it because they do have the funds to do that theoretically. And if they see that as being what gets them the control and squashes all competition to whatever they want the future to look like, would you agree that in theory, that that
1: is a worry that does have to be considered? In theory, there's an asteroid that hasn't been discovered That is a planet killer asteroid that is headed for our planet and is going to hit in tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. So, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do about that? Do you want me to change the way I'm living because that's actually, in theory, a possible? Would you agree? In theory, that's a possibility. It is. Okay. So, what do you want me to do about it? Yeah. Nothing we can do about it. (laughs) There you go. And that's my answer to you. Okay, that makes perfect sense.
0: Okay, so moving on from the tech side of things, um, I, I definitely like your position on that and the distinctions there. Um, the other side that I'm sure you're well aware of with uh, things like agorism and homesteading mm-hmm. and permaculture and more the physical world of trying to be self-sustaining, trying to operate outside of the system, trying to promote the natural order of things. Um, are there any of those more physical um, manifestations of that that resonate with you, that you like, that you are involved with, anything like that?
1: Well, I, I, I don't think that any of those... So, well, Hume's, Hume's guillotine, right? You can't derive an ought from an is. Um, so the question is really about what ought we to do. And I certainly think that the reduction of coercive violence is a positive. I do, but like that is an ought that I follow, right? Is that I do, that is a a big part of my moral compass. And I think that it's outside of psychopaths. I think it is a mostly universally preferred outcome. That is all things being equal, less coercive violence brought against you and others. and less coercive violence that you bring against others um, is it's it's preferable to have less than to have more, right. I think that's just like pretty straightforward. And from that axiom you or at least from that preference, right It's not really an axiom but it's like it's a, it's a universal preference. So from that preference, you expand out into, well, let's look at the state. You know, the state is a monopoly on violence and the state is, when it's corrupt, there is a lot of coercion. There's a, I think there's this idea of the ideal state. I don't think we've seen this ideal state and where, you know, it it's completely about defending the people and protecting the people from, you know, the psychopaths inside and outside and, you know, pr- pr- all enemies, foreign and domestic, right? Like this is the ideal state. I think we know we're never going to have that ideal state, the utopian state. Uh, And then, so there's monopoly of violence over there. At the same time, we won't ever have the fully dystopian state either. That kind of falls apart to where it's like, it's of no benefit to anyone in the state, right? It's like, it's just, it would be a scenario where like, it's we've just got all robots and the robots are just killing everybody. It's the Terminator movie, basically. Right? So the Terminator movie, Skynet, that is the manifestation of the purely dystopian state where there is no human being who is benefited by this state. I we we're far from that. Okay. <laughs> like that's a that's a, a vision, but we are incredibly far from that. So we're always somewhere in between to where. You know how, what percentage of the population does the state benefit, and you know even being here in Saipan as versus California is very very different. Um, the especially because you know the so for instance the state here now if you live here if you're a resident here you don't pay the IRS any taxes, okay. You know, you're not liable for income tax or any of those things to the IRS. You pay it to the state here, but they're not very good at collecting taxes. Let's just put it like that, right? They don't have a lot of enforcement on that. And they're not particularly focused on that uh, because most of the income for this commonwealth comes from grants from the federal government, which again, the people here are not paying into. OK, so for instance, like the uh, stimulus checks, every the people here got stimulus checks, now, mind you, they don't pay federal taxes. They don't pay to the IRS. They got stimulus checks. Basically, what happened was a lump sum was given to the government. And then the government just issued them to people in this last week. And so all there's lines around the block at all the banks right now. This is what happened last time, too. So you start to think and you're like, well, well, the stimulus checks mean something completely different when you didn't have to pay in, right? So I'm seeing these memes and it's like, yeah, we take 30% of your paycheck and then we give you $600 or $1,400 whenever we feel like it. And then that, and that's the meme. And you're like, oh yeah, wow. Powerful meme, right? But then when it's like, you don't pay us and we give you $600 to $1,400 when we feel like it. It's like, mm-hmm. well, it's pretty, kind of good, right? Like pretty good. So the entire job of the state here for the most part, I mean, the cops don't harass people like at all. Um, You rarely see the state. They do, you know, there's a lot of unlicensed businesses like agorist businesses that just operate for years and years and years and nobody really cares. Uh, There's undocumented people here that nobody cares about. Um, And the state's job is to basically go and get money from the federal government and give it to the people here. And you look and you're like, well, that's a in a very different position on the uh, level of like utopia versus dystopia, right? Like, who does it serves a lot of people here? Like, the state is really like doing a good service to the people here in that regard, you know. Um, and and you know, you're here. There is no military here. You don't pay into a war machine. You're not paying the IRS. You know what I mean? You pay your taxes here. The taxes that are there, at most, it goes to a police department that is not harassing you. You know, so it's like, huh? I think for many libertarians, they would be like, "Well, that's the state we want. <laughs> that's like the night watchman state. That's the one we we're trying to dismantle all." The, and it's like, oh, you could have just flew here with not even a passport, <laughs> and you could have had it. To, you could have had it yesterday, right? And so, um, what was okay, remind, refresh me on the question? I just got I just got off <laughs> on a tangent of of, uh, of loving on Saipan here for a second.
0: No, so, you're wh- good. Um, the question was physical manifestation. Ah, yes. yes,
1: yes, So, so the you know with agorism in particular, the it is having the state not involved. That is the original state, I think, in many ways. So, the the question for me has always been Am I acting in reaction? Am I being a reactionary or am I living in truth? This is a big question agorists need to to ask themselves. Am I being a reactionary or am I living in truth? And, like, you know, uh, self sufficiency in terms of energy and food is. A thing, right? The question becomes, is it a good thing? Is it a preferable thing? And in some ways, it is preferable, but there are trade-offs. So one of those trade-offs is if every single person was completely self-sufficient within themselves, right, a self-contained unit, social cohesion would be considerably less. We know this. This is Bastiat's If Goods Don't Cross Borders, Armies Will. Part of the reason why you can have peace and social cohesion is because we are not self-sufficient. This is a fact. It is because of a need that we have for somebody else affects our desire, for instance, to protect them. Our desire to ensure ensure their well-being. Because if I have no relationship with them and I don't need them, I am much less likely, I am not as incentivized to provide for the common defense, to promote the general welfare, and to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. This is just human nature. It's human nature. And so we have to ask ourselves that. We have to ask ourselves, like, the, and this is one of the reasons why, like, there is this movement. Within people who call themselves agorists, that how you are an agorist is you are self-sufficient. I don't, I'm not sure where this comes from. Like Conkin doesn't say this. This is not, this is not what agorism is as it's been coined, because agorism is the counter-economy. It is black and gray markets. Well, a market exists because of. Uh, The fact that a market exists means that the individuals involved are not completely self-sufficient. The fact that a, a market where food is sold exists means, it necessarily means that all of the people at the market have not grown all of their food themselves. It means that. So, this is this is where we've got to think about the trade offs these things are not good in and of themselves now now if if one is growing a product right and they are so let's say they are growing some sort of food that they are consuming and their family is consuming and then they are taking the extras and selling those extras and within that sale what they are using is to get the extras from somebody else that that somebody else is growing some variety and they use that trade to supplement themselves and to get variety. Well, that is the nature of markets. That is how markets begin. I even write about this in the book. This is Ricardian um, comparative advantage. This is is Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations. Like this is the basics of economics, right? But what happens over time and Ricardian um, comparative advantage says that What happens over time is that you, even if you start out self-sufficient, if there is a marketplace that is available to you, you will very quickly cease to be self-sufficient because of comparative advantage. You will simply produce that thing which you produce the best for the lowest cost at the highest quality because you can produce more of it and you can get more profit in exchange for the extras that you have which you can then use in the marketplace to purchase all of the other things. So self-sufficiency and the counter economy are mutually exclusive concepts. And I think it's important for agorists to realize that and to really meditate on that and think about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very worthwhile. I like that. And that's, I guess that's also where the idea of community comes into play. Yes. yeah, because if you were just an agorist yourself and you were completely, you know, off the grid, uh, self-sustaining, you don't need anybody. Then well, you're you not an agorist actually.
1: Te- by definition, you're not an agorist. Okay, true. You're not
0: participating
1: in the counter-economy. That's right. Okay. Yep. And and this and so this is an issue that I've had with the misuse of this term by people, and it is it and and I think that it's really something that we need to be very careful of because what it actually is going to be is it is going to be the way that that movement that that concept is infiltrated by the woke and taken over by the woke particularly the gaia cult Hmm. and and i see it already i'm seeing already that there are like so who is there's there's this there's a there's some individuals who i forget what they call themselves but some of them are in like the boogaloo boys and some other things where they are adopting these concepts, but these people are clear collectivists. They're clear Marxists, and they're clearly woke. Where they're adopted, like they're dressed up as Boogaloo boys, but they're like we're—I forget what they call themselves. Um, I'm yeah. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to pay more attention to these guys. But they are very much about like saying the agorist things, print some 3D guns, do all of this. But they are also about like, but they're they're also BLM Hmm. they're marching with the BLM people and it's like what what (laughs) see because they're picking and choosing they're picking and choosing I've been reading uh as I've been I'm I'm uh, a catechumen. I'm doing a catechism for uh orthodox in the within the orthodox church right now and there's this history of when the soviets took over they didn't abolish the Orthodox Church. I mean, they killed 100,000 Orthodox priests. They over, over the period of the Soviets, they killed like 20 to 30 million Orthodox Christians, right? But um, they took over the church. They sort of picked and chose what worked with that was in the church and altered the tradition. And so there was an Orthodox Church the whole time. They installed a... Uh, you know, a um, patriarch, and there was a fight like the, the other, the actual church people uh, who didn't go over to the side of the, the Soviets, they went underground, they were in catacombs having, uh, having the liturgy, and this is very similar, we would know this in a more modern times, this would have been happening in the 20s and 20s and 30s in in Russia, but in modern times, this is the situation with the Dalai Lama in Tibet and China. So there is a Dalai Lama. The Chinese installed a Communist Party-approved Dalai Lama that exists right now, and that if you're a Chinese person and you type in Dalai Lama in in your search engine, this guy will come up. The Dalai Lama that's, that travels around that everybody knows, the little jolly man with the glasses, um, he is not recognized by China. That is a government in exile. So, you know, th- B, we need to be very careful. Like, if if we don't stand by what agorism actually is, if we are willing to manipulate the term ourselves and use it incorrectly ourselves, uh, then it, then we are doomed. You know, we have to call things by their proper names. That's the the beginning of wisdom, as Confucius says.
0: Yeah, and there's definite correlations there with with the early church, too, because you've got this aspect, and I've seen it in my own life. I, I know of people that have gone way overboard on things like conspiracy theories and the you know, the anarchist and agorism and libertarianism and all these things and taking them to a place that is unhealthy. And at times, like with agorism, um, going outside of the original definition of what that thing is. Mm -hmm. And that, number one, is unhealthy for that individual, for their family. They become isolated. They become obsessed with things. And it just obviously is not a healthy thing. And also, it gives a bad name to the movement as a whole, because Mm -hmm. when people think of a truther or a conspiracy guy, then, oh, you know, those crazy people that think, you know, lizard people run the world and, you know, all the random things, flat earth, you know, name out all these different things. And um, they in their minds, they are thinking somebody that is not mentally stable, that went out and lived in the boonies by themselves and is Mm -hmm. isolated. And, uh, you know, like you say, that that is not being involved with a community within the counter economy. That It's the opposite of that. And the early church did the same thing. You had the model of the early church was to be involved, was to give, was to show um, acts of love to other people. And yet, as the church evolved, um, being a Christian what that meant was totally different. And especially in modern times, uh, that turns off so many people because they see Christians as living a certain way, as believing certain things, as being certain people that are not in line with what the Bible teaches. And it it gives the movement, it gives Christianity a bad name, but it's also very unhealthy for that person that says they're a Christian, but does not show love.
1: This is this is really like so now this is the next the the, the big watchword for me in my life right now and the, what I'm exploring is tradition, with a capital T, like as as the concept, and you've just hit the nail on the head about why tradition is important and what happens when you buck tradition, and like why it's all of a tradition, it's holistic, so. You know, this we'll see in the orthodox in Orthodoxy. We'll see this in the Catholic Church less so because they've already broken so many traditions, right? But still more so. But then, as you start getting schism after schism, so like Lutherans, then, right? They they are closer to the original tradition from which this all. So if you were to go back to, they are closer to what the church looked like in let's say the year one thousand than say non denominational evangelicals right? But they are still farther away than the Catholics, who are still farther away than the Orthodox. And what happens is that as you start to pick and choose, as you go down and you pick and choose, pick and choose, pick and choose, what you see is that, yeah, what do you end up with? You end up with something that pushes people away, whereas before, clearly, it had brought people in, because how do you go from 12 guys to you know, basically everybody in the Roman Empire who's anybody in 300 years. Like non-denominational evangelicalism that's judging everybody could not have done that. It could not have done it. Like it's not inclusive enough. And the inclusivity comes from a tradition that everybody can follow because it's laid out. It's like, this is, yes, and that what you're saying is heresy. It's heresy. And it's the intolerance. So there's been this vein of intolerance. And I guess that that's sort of what I'm expressing when somebody says, and people have been saying it to me. And I'm like, this is very weird. Where they're like, ah, I believe that agorism is about self-sufficient, that you've got to be self-sufficient. And like, I'm like, that's heresy. (laughs) That's literal heresy, what you're saying right there. Like, that's like saying that's like saying you're a Christian and and um, there was no resurrection like the resurrection just didn't happen that I'm a Christian but I don't believe in the resurrection I don't believe in the virgin birth um actually what Christianity is all about is just like the the words that it's it's just the Sermon on the Mount and it's like what are you that's heresy it's like fine okay you can believe that but don't call yourself a Christian. You can believe that, but you can't call yourself a Christian. And if it's like this, what I'm all about is I'm all about self-sufficiency. Then I'm like, "Uh, that's great. You can be that, but you're not an agorist. You're not. Because Because it's about community and it's about establishing a tradition. The tradition being, I mean, this Konkin's whole idea requires a tradition. Because it's all about taking a, taking a small market for a few things and expanding it to a market for all things, including a market for protection of that market itself. Hmm. So it's an expanded bubble. But the, ex- the bubble expands. As it expands, your degree of self-sufficiency reduces. The idea is not for people to be more self-sufficient. The idea is the removal of the state from the market as it exists now. Where people are not self-sufficient. Where we are so interdependent with each other. But it's just that by starting, it's like starting again from the kernel of the market and using the, the black and gray markets that cannot have the state by definition involved and using them as the kernel through which you expand like as another try from the beginning. So that the the goal is to be less self-sufficient. That's actually the goal of agorism, is to be as uh, not self-sufficient as possible, but that all of the inputs and economic interactions that you have have no interaction with the state. Hmm. So yeah, the community as a whole... Yes. is self-sufficient in the
0: sense of being sufficient apart from the state. Yes. And the individuals within that community are completely reliant on that community.
1: Well, the market is already self-sufficient from the state. The state is a parasite. True. Yeah. Like, if you, re- if you remove, if nobody needs a business license tomorrow, it's not like the market re- retracts. <laughs> the market expands. If nobody has to pay taxes tomorrow, it's not like the market retracts; it expands immediately. And this is the whole entire point: is that the, the, it's 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 taking a parasite off. But the thing is that the nature of this parasite is that it's so glommed on; it's such a hydra that you basically just have to start from the beginning. But this is this is also going to be a permaculture or or agriculture concept. That Sometimes if you have a blight, if you have a parasite that is on a particular crop, you have to actually go and burn the entire thing down and start over from seed. Because if you just try to like, okay, I knock these down, but it's like, nah, it's still there, you just can't see it. If you replant again, you're going to get it again. You've got to burn the whole thing down and start over. And so it's that—that's the brilliance of this concept. Is well, let's start with a kernel that is already resistant to the parasite, by definition. So black and uh, black and gray markets already don't have state involvement by necessity because they're illegal. They can't exist with state involvement because that the, the state says that this cannot exist. So it's already resistant, and that's the reason to start with them, right? And so. That's the tradition. That's acknowledging the scripture. This is why going to scripture is important. You don't want to fetishize scripture. It's not solo scripture. It's not that there's more things in the tradition than just the scripture. But the thing that you do can't be contrary to the scripture. Right? Like You can't introduce something that is that the scripture specifically prohibits. Or you can't introduce something that were you to do it would be completely anathema to what is expressed in the scripture, right? So it's like, yeah, saying this is all about being self-sufficient, therefore not participating in a marketplace, not, not having an incentive to retrieve my goods, the things that I need from out of the marketplace, that goes contrary to the scripture. That would go contrary to agorism as defined by Conkin. Yeah, and that would
0: be contrary to the true meaning of love your neighbor. Love your neighbor Mm -hmm. as an action versus love your neighbor as sit back in your compound and have happy Mm -hmm. thoughts about the world.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because love is also about trust, isn't it? Yes. And and sacrifice. and, And sacrifice. And to participate in a market is to embody those two virtues, trust and sacrifice. So I would say... Go ahead. Okay. So that is Bitcoin to an
0: extent, right? Yes,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. So these things map on when you see environments where trust and sacrifice are required. You know, in the case of Bitcoin, one of the things that you it's a deeper level of trust. People say that it's not trust. You know, Satoshi Nakamoto said it's it's a system based on crypto, cryptographic proof instead of trust. But crypt, even relying on cryptographic proof is trust. But it is a trust in the the an understanding of the fabric of reality. So therefore, it is a trust in God. In God we trust. To trust in math is to trust in the Father. To trust in cryptographic proof is to not trust in man. To not trust in the genius of man, but instead to trust in the genius of the creator who created these rules and who set the stars in the heavens. It's it's, it's trusting in something completely different. It is the face of God on the money as opposed to the face of Caesar.
0: Now, with this line of thought, the idea would be that... Bitcoin as well as agorism are movements and systems and a manifestation of the ability for us to move outside of being a state-controlled society where we have this parasite on our backs. And these systems, agorism, Bitcoin, they are necessarily outside of that and would give us a potential it's a kernel it's a seed for having a society a system a mass community that is not victim to the current way of the world and the the one uh so going back to the asteroid scenario go ahead um, so if if that is the case and if that actually starts sprouting And we start to see that these systems, and we'll use Bitcoin specifically, that Bitcoin is starting to be something that is superseding the power and influence of the state, then isn't there a realistic threat of the state attacking Bitcoin? Or would Bitcoin then be strong enough, so to say, to not be likely to fall victim to direct
1: attack it's a good question right and it it really forces us to ask what is the state and i've said this many times that like the state is not it's not some physical well we know it's not a physical manifestation right like you can't i say bring the state in front of me and let me look at it let me touch it Hmm. you know i can't touch the state so the question is, what is the state? And the state, the, the fact of the matter is, it's a state of being in the hearts of men is what it is. And culture is is upstream from politics, or we just say politics is downstream from culture. And the state manifests, as I just talked about, in terms of the difference between Saipan and California, right? What is What is seen by the people as acceptable behavior of the state? is directly related to notions of culture. There was just a press release. I actually tweeted it out. There was a press release uh, from the governor here. And um, it was saying that, it was a few days ago, it was this week, and it was saying that there is no, just announcing that there is no uh, threat. They see that there is no threat of community spread of COVID in the Commonwealth. There hasn't been. So we haven't had a hospitalization. We haven't had a death. I've been here a year. Um, and in that press release, there was a sentence put in there and it said, um, the the culture of CNMI, Commonwealth of Northern Marianas Islands, thrives on large gatherings. That's, that's how it started this thing to then say, ah, but you should probably wear a mask, social distance, whatever. Be safe. Those sorts of things. Now, mind you, there's large social gatherings all the time and nobody is wearing a mask, social distancing, right? They're they're the large social gatherings these people have been having in this place for thousands of years. And so this is one reason why you're not gonna have a California style, UK style, any of those style lockdown. And so I think what people need to think about and the scenario that you are bringing up, you know, they are things that happen at the same time so a culture that has grown to where bitcoin is a an integral part of what they are doing and the state and and the state not imposing itself that it has grown to a level where it would take significant effort for the state to impose itself in it that is a scenario where it's not even this is not a concern about the state taking it over And this is part of the entire idea and the part of the entire philosophy is that it grows in a way that it, by the time, it's like the 51% attack. It's the same concept. The idea is that by the time the state would be in a position where it's like, oh, this thing's got to go, it's very expensive for the state to get 51%. You know, back in 2009, it would have been no problem even as a little tiny effort for any government anywhere to have amassed enough computing power to basically have way more than Satoshi and Hal Finney and the few other people mining and to, to kill Bitcoin in its tracks. Absolutely to do it. Um, and we, and it was done interestingly enough, the first 51% attack, I'm forgetting the name of the coin. Um, but it's kind of an interesting historical thing that it was uh, it was actually a, a current Bitcoin developer, Luke Dash Junior, who was running uh, Allegis, I believe, or Elegis was the name of the mining pool, and this coin came along, and he basically took, pointed the hash at it and basically destroyed this coin. I think this is in 2013, 2014. So in its early, you've got to you've got to strangle it in its crib, basically. Um, But the interesting thing about it is the state is slow to take notice of these things uh, because it's so powerful. And this was the same story of Christianity. Like, it just grew in the Roman Empire. It's not like the Romans considered it any particular threat uh, until it was adopted by a Roman emperor. And that's going to be the exact same thing, is that political power is going to come from out of these groups, and I, the same pattern will repeat itself. It's not that Christianity or, or that Bitcoin or uh, agorism, well, it, it won't be agorism at that point, At that point, right? So it's not like structures of authority don't arise within an agorist situation. It's not like you don't have leaders, right? It's not like you don't have people that are looked to as, uh, as exemplars of how to behave, that you don't have mentors, that you don't have... Um, you know, people carrying on the tradition that you don't have a priest class. Of course you'd have all of those things. You just don't have the state in its current manifestation. You know, do, does power corrupt? Yes. Does absolute power corrupt? Absolutely. Yes. Will whatever this new system is, um, that I think in my studying of history, that the the combination of this thing, agorism and then Bitcoin as a, a tool, an economic tool of that, do I think that that has a very, of all the things that I can see around, that that has the best chance of supplanting uh, the current system and, and providing an alternative? 100%. Yes, I do. Um, will that eventually become corrupt just as our system has? Of course it will. I mean, that's what we talked about the last time, right? But but the nature of things is you the, the wheel turns. This is the upside of the wheel. And then eventually it will be corrupted, but not in the way that you're describing. By the time it reaches that point, it will it will be its own thing. There will be no state to take it over. It will not even be in that same way. It's hmm. hopeful. <laughs> I mean, I think it's realistic, right? So it's like if if we do if we do truly see the patterns that we've been discussing, and we do recognize this as the way that human society works, and then we see the parallels of I mean Studying Christianity and seeing early Christianity is, is perfect. Studying the American colonies and seeing the, the rise of what became the American experiment, which actually began 150 years before the Declaration of Independence, then it has all the hallmarks. Let's just put it like that. It's got all the pieces to it in a way that I have not seen something have these pieces before. And so maybe it's not that. But if it's not, I don't know what is. Well,
0: that's a very good place to end this section of the interview. We'll pick up next time with the third and final part of this Vin Armani interview. As I'm sure that you could tell, I did have some slight disagreement with Vin on the vulnerabilities of of proof-of-work, and I just figured this is not the format for having a proof-of-work versus proof-of-stake debate, nor do I necessarily fall completely on the side of of proof-of-stake, but I do personally feel like there are probably more vulnerabilities in proof-of-work than... What then sees it from his personal perspective. So there is definitely a difference there. I believe that did come out. I probably worded my argument a little poorly, unexpectedly, because I use the word theoretically so many times. I just have been in these debates before and people, yeah, try to argue that something's not possible. And no, it definitely is. Theoretically, it could happen. That doesn't mean that it's as much of a long shot as an asteroid hitting the earth, I would definitely not go that far. But, you know, I get the point that you can't account for every single possibility that could happen. I believe that is 100% true as well. I would agree with him on that. I would just probably disagree on... The statistical possibility of a 51% attack on a proof-of-work chain, I would say that that is probably much more probable, by far, than something extreme like an asteroid hitting the Earth, but... I could be wrong too. So I am sure that there are some of you listeners that would totally agree with me and some that would totally not. And that is perfectly fine. It's just like there are some who believe blockchain is just a tool that will enslave us and is just the ruling mechanism of the technocracy. And some people that believe that blockchain is our savior and this technology is what will free us. And there is everything in between, which is probably more where I land personally. So there is room for many perspectives, many opinions, and that is definitely my goal on this podcast. I do really like the theme and the thread of community that Vin wove through this section of the interview, especially and tying that in with aspects of agorism and self-sufficiency and Bitcoin and all of these things, how there is this common thread that goes through there that I think is very important as well. And so I did really like that. On a related note, I guess I could give an update on the local community that I am a part of. I have mentioned before that I'm a part of an Agorist community locally here, started up a small group, and now that has expanded. And I don't think I've given any updates on that in a while. So let me go ahead and just give you a very brief overview of where we are now. We started off if you haven't heard, with about eight or nine people or so that just met at a restaurant and talked about things related to agorism, liberty, uh, conspiracy, corruption, COVID, all those kinds of things. And it, really interesting, good to meet like-minded people. But now that has expanded to probably 40 to 50 members total, We now not only meet up once a month, we also have split up into smaller subgroups where we have groups for... Uh, People that live within probably 15 minutes or less of each other is roughly how that works out. And I would say the scope of the territory that we cover in our region, it's probably about an hour's drive from the person that's furthest on one side to the person furthest on the opposite. So in general, we're all about 30 minutes away from each other. But there is definitely a wide range geographically of what we cover in total, if you take the outliers, and we have these smaller subgroups that meet up and do other things that are comprised of people that live very close to each other geographically. And so the way we are doing this is we're starting to organize a little bit more as a whole group And we have those monthly meetings where we all get together. We are starting to put up a website and information. We're planning on doing classes locally so we can do some outreach, do some education all of these types of things, that's something that we're really working on right now. We're also still doing some group projects. We're doing some events. There've been many local events that multiple people from the group have met up and gone to together, some classes that we've gone to together, that kind of thing. So it's been really good on that front and then also these small r- local subgroups they have been getting together as well separately and they are able to meet up and rely on each other in a much more intimate way, I guess I could say. And so overall, we just have a lot going on, I guess, in the group, everything from reaching out to the community as a whole to having people that live one street over from you that you're getting to know a lot more and meeting together with and meeting at each other's houses and these types of things. So it's been really good. And that's definitely growing. We're definitely getting that community here, which, as you know, if you've been listening to these interviews and this podcast as a whole, I personally believe is a very important thing especially in the times we're living in so since that was a little relevant I figured I could give you an update on that I think that does wrap up everything I have for this episode though so thank you for your support for listening for spreading the word about this podcast and this type of content thank you for the financial support of the patrons on Patreon as well as Subscribestar I really appreciate that I've gotten a little bit of feedback on Subscribestar at least so thank Thank you for that. I really appreciate that. I also got some more feedback via email. And again, like I always say, that's extremely helpful. That is probably the most important support that I get is hearing feedback on the things that I'm covering, on the things you're interested in, on that type of thing. So please keep that coming please leave a rating and a review if you are able to. I know you're not always able to on your own podcast player. Sometimes you've got to sign up for something on Apple or Spotify or something else, some platform that gives that ability of being able to leave a rating and review, but I think most podcast players do that and the website allows for something like that as well. I think you can like episodes and comment on them, so that's something that you should definitely feel free to do. I did also figure out how to get the podcast players in general to list all of the episodes for this podcast in its entirety. So before it was cutting off at episode like 12 or 13 or something like that. I think it was just doing the most recent like 99 episodes or 100 episodes or something. So it's cutting off the first few episodes, first dozen or more episodes. But I think I have fixed that now. So now you should be able to go all the way back to the overview episode and then getting into episode one that should all be available so if you are not familiar with this podcast as a whole and all of the content therein if there are some things in these interviews that you're feeling a little lost on then go back to episode number one and i guarantee you that you will enjoy the content you will get a lot out of it if you are into the type of content that I have been covering lately, you'll definitely get a lot out of going back and going through those episodes as well. So I would definitely recommend that. And and that's kind of why you might feel a little lost if you're just jumping in on these interviews is because I'm just going to assume that you either have already listened to all those or you are fully aware of all that information. But if you have not listened to them, then most people are probably not fully aware of all the information. So that is another recommendation. But with that, I am just going to close out here. We'll come back next time with part three of this Vin Armani interview. Thank you again for being here and for all of your support. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.